Hello, everyone. Um, my guest today is Wilfred Danzinger. He is the candidate in my riding for the PPC party in this uh, upcoming federal election. And I'm happy that he agreed to join us. So welcome, Wilfred. Yes, thank you, Paul. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I thought I'd just start by asking what your what your background is, maybe like your education, what you've done for work and, and stuff like that. People usually like to ask politicians that. So okay, sure. get that get that out of the way. Yeah. So anyways, I'm just an introverted computer guy. Um, I liked computers ever since, you know, my junior high, you know, way back in the early eighties got like Apple IIe computer and and then uh, I was in the computer club, just playing on computers. And then I went to, um, so, so I lived in Edmonton for, for school. I was actually born in Montreal in grade four. My parents moved to Edmonton. And I went, ended up going to Old Skona Academic High School. So that was actually the top high school according to the Fraser Institute in, in Alberta. And I think it's, it's ranked amongst like the top high schools in Canada. And then I went, from there I went to University of Alberta and I took the computer engineering program. So back in the in the 1980s, that was only one out of three universities in, Cal in, uh, in Canada that offered the computer engineering program. So anyways, I graduated from that and then I worked for a year in oil and gas in Alberta for an oil well servicing company as a field engineer. So that job involved lots of traveling to sites, you know, all of the different oil well areas all throughout Alberta, Southern Saskatchewan, and even to um, Northwest Territories. And uh, so then the oil prices dropped and then, uh, and then my company sort of went out of business and what was left of the company was bought up by a different company. And then that's when I moved to Ontario and uh, I got a job working for Northern Telecom. I worked, I started with Northern Telecom and then I moved to Bell Northern Research. I was doing, uh, amongst other things, software development for telephone switches. And then I ended up also working for doing software development for, for the wireless space stations as well. And that was then out of the, I guess, the Nortel Calgary office. And then when Nortel, I guess, went bankrupt, which is a whole different story, I worked, I was like just a contractor for two years in Calgary for Shell Canada. And then I moved back to Ontario with BlackBerry. So then I worked with BlackBerry in the handheld division. And I guess my, my whole my whole job in terms of my engineering work and research and development work is very, very creative. I also have two patents as well that I actually received while I was at BlackBerry. And all of, all of the work that I did was always, you know, in collaboration with other people. And it was never really, my idea is better than yours. It was always a collaborative team environment where, where we share ideas and even even with even with the patents at BlackBerry, um, at Nortel, a lot of the work I did was actually software development, and then sort of towards the tail end of Nortel, I actually went into quality assurance. 
at BlackBerry, I worked in quality assurance, but it was a wonderful creative environment that allowed allowed the, the testers to also be able to come up with different solutions and product ideas. And this is how I actually not only um, got the two patents, but I also then had some patent presentations to share my knowledge with the rest of the QA team. And then several other QA team members then also ended up coming up with great ideas and getting patents themselves. So it's, it is all about sharing your ideas and your best practices with others to help others become successful, for the company to become successful, and for the customers to become successful. Mm-hmm. And at, so anyways, after BlackBerry, I ended up working for a company where I'm currently working is Logisense, where, where actually a whole bunch of ex-BlackBerry people ended up going to. And they're, and I'm, I'm very lucky to work for this company because I get to work remotely, even though like I'm living in Toronto. So, and the company is based out of Cambridge and I get to work remotely. And COVID did not really impact me. It was to be perfectly honest, it was actually beneficial to me because I got to work from home. I'm an introvert. I'm, I'm productive. I sold my car. Um, I saved $250 a month on car insurance and two tanks of gas per week. And the extra money I was using to you know, aggressively pay off my mortgage. And uh, so that's my experience. But then I saw a whole bunch of other things happening, which did not make sense to me. I have a lot of friends that are small business owners and I see them suffering. I see a lot of the businesses, even even here in Toronto, there was the Dover Courthouse. It, it was the, I guess, like a, mm-hmm. like a social dance area. That's where I actually met my wife. And I spent a lot of time there too. And that was really sad when, when that ended up getting sold and closing. Yeah. But um, so a lot of, so even though the COVID was, you know, beneficial to me and my, I guess, finances, I could see that it was really hurting other people. And the biggest thing that did not make sense to me was when they shut down all of the small businesses, but they had the big box stores open. Mm-hmm. And I saw these huge lineups. I was in those lineups too, you know, to get your, you know, bag of milk or toilet paper or whatever it is people are buying those days. And then I see one person, you know, coughing or sneezing, you know, inside the store. Everyone else is herded through that. And I thought, for the life of me, how could this be safer than having all of the small stores open and they still have, you know, the two-meter distancing and all the same safety protocols as the big stores, but then the people are spread out. People are spread out. You don't have to worry so much about spreading the disease and you're not hurting jobs and you're not hurting the small businesses. So this this was like, you know, like the first thing where I could see that there's something really not you know, not right. Mm-hmm. And then just like any good detective story, all you need to do is follow the money. And then you take a look at who was making 40% profit from COVID and all of this. So that, that was sort of, that was not really the reason why, like, it was just like, I was, you know, starting to, you know, open my eyes and see that, you know, some things are not right. And then, so now, you know, like the next thing is, is, you know, the, 
like with the vaccine. So there's like a lot of controversy in terms of like the vaccinated and the unvaccinated and the anti-vaxxers and, and all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so now my, my take on, my take on it is this, I personally am not anti-vaccine. I, I love all of the vaccines I had, you know, like the polio, I had my four doses of polio and it's like fully advertised. It's like I'm hundred percent safe from polio. And you know, my, my flu vaccine is not really such a good vaccine. It only offers like 50% protection. And two years ago, I had my shingles vaccine. And my doctor, he was, he was very, very adamant. He said, it's a two-dose vaccine. You make sure you get your second dose on schedule. So then I made sure I had my second dose exactly on schedule. Because he said, if I do not get it on schedule, it will not be effective. These are his exact words. Hmm. So now when, when the COVID vaccine came out, it was obviously experimental. And I thought back in terms of, you know, my own history in 2009, I had the experimental H1N1 swine flu vaccine. And I knowingly took it because I decided for myself that it's the right thing to do for me and my family because I had small children at home. And the H1N1 affected the young, the young children a lot more than the older, older generation because the older generation were previously exposed to something similar. So I decided I'm doing this to protect my family, especially my, my young children, because I was taking public transportation, you know, because I was working downtown. And that was very different in 2009 because there was no such thing as social distancing or masks or anything like that. It was just... It was, you know, if you're scared, you get the vaccine. And we never even talked about it at work. End of story. And at the time, I was also living in Alberta because, um, because, there were, because the outbreaks were out west. I've spoken with several people here in Ontario. Some of them have had the H1N1 vaccine, but a lot of them did not because it never really made its way to, you know, to, to Ontario. Mm-hmm. So now, after I had my experimental vaccine, I found out a while later that, that I had the one, you know, with the mercury and a whole bunch of other, you know, stuff in it. Like the mercury was used as a preservative. There were a lot of people that had adverse effects from this vaccine. And so they, they, ended, up, they ended up changing the formula. And then in the end, I think, I think it was, they then discontinued it for, I guess you can look up the reason why they did that for yourself but anyways all i know from this experiment was that when the vaccine first comes out it's experimental and i know that the formulas change because i saw it like in my case firsthand experience i know dosages can change i know many things can change i work in quality assurance and i see that there is no such thing as when something is ready for test or even beta test or, you know, like customer test or something like, you know, we have like a customer acceptance testing that's after, you know, our internal company does its own quality testing. We give it to the customer. They do some testing themselves before they make it go live to production. So there's many different stages of testing. And in each one of those stages, problems are found and then fixes are made before it's finally production ready. So it's the same thing with the vaccine. So what I thought was, I'm just going to, I'm working from home. I'm not going anywhere. I'm very hygienic. Um, 
I haven't, you know, gotten COVID or transmitted it to anyone, I'm going to wait until the vaccine is approved or that there's more data on it before I make a decision whether or not to take it. And in the meantime, I was not traveling anywhere or didn't, you know, need to do need to do anything. So so then so then what happened was like like my parents, my parents, they they're old, they're 80 and 88 years old. They got they were very lucky because in Alberta they got to take the Pfizer vaccine. They got to take their first dose and second dose according to schedule. And then in April I had my annual appointment with my doctor. And then so then he told me that he highly recommends that I take the vaccine. At which point I asked him, I said, you know, like I needed to I needed I told him I did not want to be in this experiment because number one, it was experimental. Number two, number two, I don't know if, you know, this, if I can get the second dose according to the schedule, because at that time Trudeau said, everybody gets the first dose and the second dose will be maybe three or four months later, because there was a question about that. So I told him that I reminded my doctor, I said, when I got my shingles vaccine, you, you told me specifically I need the second dose on schedule or it's not effective. So that's why I do not want to take a vaccine where I do not get the second dose according to the manufacturer's recommended schedule. And that was just because you weren't sure if the vaccines were going to be available on schedule for you to get the second dose? Yes, yes. Because at that time, Trudeau made an announcement say, saying that he wants everybody to get the first shot. And the second shot, you will, you may not be able to get the second shot on schedule. So that was that was the, the early spring announcement from the federal government. So I did not know, there was no guarantee that I could get the second shot on schedule. And then the third thing was, I told him that when I get my second shot, there's no guarantee that it will be even from the same manufacturer. So it's a, it's basically a triple a triple experiment. And after which my doctor read to me from his script, I highly recommend that you take the COVID vaccine because the benefits outweigh the risks. So then. I just made a personal decision, and this was back in April, not to take the vaccine because I'm still working from home. Everything's shut down. I'm not traveling. I'm not at risk or doing anything. So, so I'm fine. And, you know, there are people, you know, with underlying conditions or, or you know, other circumstances that, you know, may need this vaccine more than me. So then, so then I'm happy to leave you know, my dose, you know, for these people that really need it. So then one week later, so AstraZeneca was, was actually given at the time. One week later, Health Canada made an announcement saying that the risks outweigh the benefits for the AstraZeneca. So then they, they um, I guess, removed it at the time. And ironically, this particular batch was the one that is that was manufactured, I believe, in India, which is which um, the people that were actually vaccinated, I knew, I personally know someone who actually got that vaccine just because they wanted to travel. And now because they had this sort of bad batch experimental vaccine, they are not allowed to travel. So, so I, so I thought, you know, I, I made a, a good personal decision not to, 
you know, to wait until this experiment and, and the test is over to see what happens. And, and then, so, so then, you know, like I, I also have, you know, a teenage daughter, she's diabetic and she actually studied microbiology at University of Waterloo. And, you know, for her, you know, for her, you know, taking the vaccine was a good decision for her because really it needs to be, you need to have like a decision and an informed consent decision. So now my son, my son, my 16 year old son, he is, um, he's a lifeguard working for city of Toronto. And this is really now how, how I got into politics because, you know, like, you know, when I saw those lines and all the, these stupid things happening, you know, jokingly, I told my wife, I said, you know, I should just run for, I should just run for prime minister because hmm. <laughs> I think I can do a better job than what's going on here. And then, you know, I'm sort of like the creative, you know, type of person and she's more pra pragmatic. Right. So she says, no, just stop dreaming, stop wasting your time on, you know, on, on things, you know, on things that won't happen. But anyways, so then what happened was when, you know, when, when my son actually got a letter from, from um, the city of Toronto saying that he needs to be vaccinated, otherwise he will face, I guess, discipline, disciplinary action, which may result, the word is, you may be fired. He didn't say you will be fired, you may be fired. Right, so he's he's actually in grade twelve this year. He's he has his lifeguard job, you know, to earn some money for university, and it's it's very tough on him because you know to get this. So what I did was I just all I wanted was all I wanted was informed consent for my son because because in the inter all I do is I look on the internet, I look at uh, Center for Disease Control in the United States, United States government, CDC webpage. And, you know, diff I look at official, sort of official websites to try to get my information, not just random YouTubers or whatever. And, and what I see is, I see that he has a, a higher chance of getting my myocarditis or, um, or, you know, severe adverse effects from the vaccine based on his age group and gender than adverse effects if he would actually catch the COVID. So all I wanted was, I just needed to know what is the number needed to treat, number needed to harm. So what is the percentage chance that the vaccine works? For example, polio vaccine is 100%. Flu vaccine is 50%. Chance. So I wanted to know how effective is this vaccine? That's question number one for informed consent. Question number two for informed consent is, you know, what are the possible adverse effects of the vaccine and the percentage chance of getting each of those? Because you need to take these two numbers compared to the number of what for his age group and, and gender, what are the adverse possible adverse outcomes from getting the actual disease. So these are the three things that you need to consider when making an informed medical consent decision. So I went to my pharmacist because my pharmacist is the one who is giving, giving the vaccine. And I was very specific. I wanted to know from her 
what the NNT and NNH was of the vaccine. She could not give me this information. I went to uh, Telehealth Ontario, Ontario Public Health. I was on the phone for hours with these guys, many different people, Canada Health, the Canada Health COVID line. Nobody could give me this number. They said, oh, these are all published on some web page or something. I said, I just want you to read it to me and tell me what is the adverse event and the percentage chance of getting it. Read it out loud. I said, I do not want to look at a web page and interpret it. I'm not a medical professional. I just need someone to tell me. And nobody, nobody actually was able to tell me this. For my shingles vaccine, it was very easy. My doctor was able to give me all of this information. So anyways, for informed, the point is, is informed medical consent. And from what I read on the internet for myself, on official web pages from other countries, I'm afraid. I'm afraid for my son. So this is why, for him, I do not feel comfortable for him getting getting a vaccine. And so, so then, for me, the only thing I could do is, you know, my wife, she was actually crying in bed because, you know, she loves her children and she doesn't want anything bad to happen to them. And I thought at that time, you know, just one vote is not enough. I need to, I need to do something else. I need to, I actually went to the Unmask Your Kids event uh, rally, which was, um, I guess, at Centennial Park. And that's where I met Maxime Bernier. And, wow. and all I wanted to do was, was help the local candidate go door to door, whatever. And uh, because the PPC is, you know, like the biggest thing about the PPC is, you know, they are pro Charter of Rights and Freedoms. A lot of times they're labeled as anti-vax, but it is their their specific stance is pro-informed medical consent. So this is their official stance, and which is very different than anti-vax. And I challenge anyone to to you know tell me what are the exact NNT and NNH from for this vaccine for specifically. 16 year old males like like that would be like this is something that i would you know like to find out and if people actually know this then that, that's great but um anyways so so i was told that so you met you met maxine bernier then yes i met maxine bernier and and then i was actually told that they have an opening in the parkdale high park and then they asked me if i would be the candidate and then and then I said yes. I was actually very, wow. I was actually very lucky because I had, I had booked um, my summer vacation time, like I, I booked it like you know long before. It wasn't like it was long before. It was just coincidental that it sort of matched that time. And then I was able to go out and you know do all my canvassing for, for signatures for my nomination and and all of that stuff and. And I guess this is my third week as a politician. <laughs> so, 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 so here I wow. am. <laughs> here you are. So how has it been? Has it, you know, what has it been like so far? Okay, so far, so, so what I did was I just created a wilfppc.com webpage. And in this webpage, it's not just, it's not just, you know, me advertising, you know, about myself. It is... I also have an FAQ section because I have like a lot of 
people asking me questions, and then I can I can put some answers in there. And so so the nice the nice thing is that a lot of people understand how important this election is, and I had a lot of people that come up with come up to me and ask me, I've never voted before, how do I vote? And things like that. So I'm so I'm actually very happy that people are understanding how important this election is. I've had a lot more positive response. Like I've had a little bit of neg negative response. I've had um, so the negative the negative things were um, one person was driving down the road and he stuck out his finger, um, and another person was jogging down the, the road and shouted something mean, and and then as I was walking through the neighborhood, one one of the constituents who was a PPC supporter had her sign vandalized and people spitting on her yard. She was she's actually an old like a senior citizen, an old lady, and and she's sitting on her porch and people come and spit on her lawn and whatever. And yeah. so it's, it's it's really really sad when when I see that. I wanted to ask you about that cuz I heard I saw on Twitter recently um someone posted that um they like seeing PPC signs because then they know where their neighborhood racists are or something like that. And they had they had this idea that anyone who supports the PPC must be kind of some kind of a racist or something like that. And I thought that was weird. Um, have you had any of those responses? So I had, there was, there was actually, it was actually on Saturday. I spoke with, I spoke with, no, it was actually Sunday. Sunday I spoke with, um, with a resident who was, um, she was just a little old gray haired lady. And then I just, because I was there with my sign, trying to talk to people, and and she's she's. I asked her, do you, do you know? I said, oh, I'm Wilfred Danzinger. I'm I'm running uh, in your riding. I asked her, do you know about the People's Party of Canada? And she says, I don't like Maxime Bernier. He's, you know, he's a racist. And then <laughs> I'm going, what? Like, where did you hear that? Right. You know exactly what I mean. It's all over the news. And I say, really? Like, on which news? Where? Like, tell me specifically. She couldn't tell me. Anyways, so then I, so then I had a bit of a conversation with her. You know, okay, well, People's Party has the most diverse, you know, group of candidates that, from any party. And the whole message of the People's Party is, is actually unification and acceptance and and this is the people's party is the i would say the only non-racist party and hmm. anyways I, I had an, i had a nice discussion with her after after talking with her she was like a long-time liberal or lifetime liberal she was happy to take my sheet and and she was and she said she's going to vote for me and the the thing the thing is this what the people's party does differently is the People's Party is inclusive. Everybody is a Canadian. The racial divisions, the religious divisions, the educational divisions, the, the uh, vaccination status divisions, all of these things are just, the purpose of these things are to divide the population. And what we need to do is we need to 
unify everyone. Everybody needs to be unified. Hmm. And this this is how, as you know, citizens and as a country, we will thrive. For example, um, I guess the, the one story that I always tell people when they say, oh, you guys are racist and whatever, then I actually tell them, you know, like, you know, how this, you know, North American racism thing is actually beneficial for the ruling class. Because they found out in the 1930s that, you know, through the unions that, hey, you know, the workers were getting together to try to, you know, you know, go on strike and um, to get better wages and better working conditions. And then, you know, like the, the top elite guys, they didn't, they didn't like these, this idea of unions. So what they did was they, they had some moles infiltrate the union meetings so that they would say, hey, we shouldn't let, you know, the other racial groups join. It should only be white people. So then the very first vote in the union was whether or not everybody should be included. So the vote actually went, okay, white people only. The second vote was, do we go on strike? Yes. The white people went on strike. Every, and then these companies and bosses, they made so much money because now you have the racial division. You have the white people, and then, and then the minority groups were bust in they were so desperate to work. They were working now for less than before, less than minimum wage, less than before. And they were making less money. They were desperate to get any money. And then the white people were unemployed, getting nothing. And then they were, and then that also then caused fighting between between the groups. While these rich elite guys were getting richer and richer. So they found out that's when they discovered as long as we divide people, we will benefit. Hmm. Which, so do you think that's still happening today? Absolutely. Now take, now take a look at this. So now if you look at what's coming, the vaccine passport is coming. There's only one party against the vaccine passport. It is the PPC. What is the vaccine passport going to do? It's going to create another division between the people. And who is going to benefit? So now we already hurt the small businesses so badly with the shutdowns. Why are we hurting the small businesses? Because these are the independent, free-thinking entrepreneurs. And if you want to rule people, you cannot have free thinkers. So these are the ones that they specifically need to target and need to hurt. And the vaccine passport, what is that going to do? It is now going to limit access to these small businesses. Where are, where are the unvaccinated people going to go? They're going to go to Amazon and whatever, all of these things that they went to during the shutdown. So, so this is what is happening. And who is going to benefit from this? Who's going to get rich from the unvaccinated not being able to shop locally and not being able to locally support you know, businesses within their community. This is, this is what's happening. This is, anyways, hmm. this is yeah. the division of the people. This is the destruction of, of our society. So, yeah, from your perspective, having that experience with your son and the vaccine, I can, 
totally understand what that was like. I myself was fairly hesitant about the vaccine for quite a while. Um, so the people who want this vaccine passport, um, I think most of them anyway, are doing it because they really believe that the vaccine will save lives and and the unvaccinated will will spread the disease more. And so what do you, have you encountered people like that? Or what would you say to someone who, who truly is trying to help other people and trying to, you know, save lives by having a vaccine passport in place so that people can be safe? What would you say to someone like that? So they're they're basically they're basically three types of people. So person number one is the person that understands what's going on. Person number two is person number two is the one that no matter what you say, they have their own set of beliefs. However, they they um, got their beliefs. It could be maybe denial because they, because maybe they. Maybe they had the vaccine and they really believe that there are people that believe that, you know, why would your doctor or your government not lie to you? These people exist, right? And these these people will say, you know what? I've spoken with some of those and they said, I believe in forced vaccination. Everybody should be forced vaccinated, right? Mm. I've actually heard that. This was like this was actually one of the constituents who was a lawyer told me this. And it was like, it was very shocking to hear. It's like, it is, you don't even consider, you know, a person's, you know, medical history or anything. Another, another person told me, another person who was a parent said, said, well, I got my children vaccinated and you should get yours vaccinated too. Because, because I guess the exact wording was because you have a duty for to society. You have a duty to to society because if your son gets someone else sick with COVID, it's your fault. So get him vaccinated. If he gets myocarditis or dies from it, well, that's just you did your job for society. Mm-hmm. So that so this is what this is what another person told me, which is actually very sad because this has this as we know in history has happened before where where a government or someone decided that certain individuals were not good for society and need to be i guess euthanized or medical experiments done on them for the good of society or and i guess we all know you know this is like obviously the Holocaust that we're talking about, but not many people know the extent of the Holocaust because it wasn't, because it wasn't just the Jewish people. It was also the German people themselves that were affected. Any German people that were perhaps had some, you know, medical, medical problems or um, some of them maybe were low IQ or something like that. These people were also sent to these extermination centers. It was, it took a few more years to 
to do that to try to get the get the uh, sort of trick the German people into allowing this. And then the other thing that probably many people do not know is the German soldiers themselves, like the ones that were fighting, that believed that they were fighting for their country, for their motherland and whatever, that were then injured or, you know, like, or had, you know, terrible war injuries and stuff like that. They were also sent to camps to be exterminated because they were no longer considered able-bodied, productive members of society. So, mm-hmm. so, so these are these are like the terrible things you know that have happened in our history, and how how did they allow this? It was step one was you dehumanize the undesirables. And right now, like with this, with the division, right, where instead of, you know, unifying people, we are all human beings, we are all Canadians, it is now, you're a PPC, you're a racist, you're an anti-vaxxer, whatever, right? And you're directing a lot of anger towards a group. And and then once once you have this anger to this group then you feel that, okay, these guys are barbarians or they're not humans or they're whatever, right? So then, so then you know, we can give them the finger, we can, we can spit on their, so- their lawns or their signs or whatever, and we can do bad things to them because they are not human. And, mm. and, and this, is, this is the true racism, well, I guess it's, it's, it's beyond racism. It's like the, the division, the fractures in, in our society. It is, it is the, the evil. This is the real evil. This is the virus that is actually spreading across the world. And, and this is what needs to be stopped. And, and to be perfectly honest, it was like, it was... You know, yes, you know, like I, I considered moving my, my older brother. He actually conveniently, you know, a month ago, it was already planned, you know, obviously a, long, a lot longer, actually moved out of the country for a job. <laughs> and a lot of the people, when I was talking to people, a lot of, you'd be surprised how many said that they were moving. So, you know, one person said he's moving to England. He says it's not much better in England, but at least my family is there. Right. And there were so many people so sad with, you know, the state of Canada and the direction it's heading. But for me, it was like I told my wife, it's like, like, I need to stay and I need to fight because this needs to be stopped right here, right now. Because if Mm. no matter where we go, it's going to spread. Yeah. So my People who've listened to my podcast know that one of my main concerns is polarization. Um, and that's why I like to talk to people who have different views. And, and I know from my own experience that, you know, there are certain people who, who, will have a very hard time listening to you because their perspective is so different. Um, you know, I, some people would, 
would would you know not enjoy your your comparison to the Holocaust. Although I know you're not comparing our current state of things to the Holocaust. You're you're just saying where we are now might be step one of like twenty in order to get to like a Holocaust type thing. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what my question is here, but how how do we address this polarization where um, people people have a hard time listening to each other and they they hear certain things that they that they disagree with so much that they think they should just not listen. What is your response to that? Yeah, so that's actually a very good question. So we have a Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and something very important within there is the, is our free, free speech. And, you know, this is my week three as a politician. And, you know, before before this, like, I didn't really know what free speech was. It means like, oh, I can go talk to my neighbor and, and complain about Trudeau or something like that, right? You know, and I'm not going to go to jail if I say something bad about my current government or express my discontent, right? That's, to me, as, you know, just a regular citizen, like, this is what I thought really free speech was. But... But it's a little bit different now because I have, I, you know, just even within the last week, my perspective has changed because last Wednesday there was the 100 debates of the environment, which was advertised as an all-candidates debate, and I was not allowed to participate. There were only three people that participated. It was like the Liberal candidate, NDP, and Green Party. So they certainly could have fit one more in there. Our writing only has seven candidates. And I can understand. They said, oh, well, it's the, we're only allowing the, the parties that were able to speak in the federal leaders debate, whatever. I, I can understand how you can limit the federal leaders debate because if you have over 120 different, you know, parties, running for the federal election, yes, you can't have like 120 different leaders in there. But for, but for seven, certainly you could. And four is like more than reasonable to add me. And what I did was I had to, you know, I had to like really sort of make a, make a case for allowing me to enter because, because for me, it is not, I'm not entering politics because... I want to be a politician. I don't want to, you know, go to Ottawa and be an MP or these things. It's like, I love my job being, a, you know, engineer, being creative and stuff like that. You know, I love, you know, spending time with my family, helping kids with homework and all that stuff, right? This is like, this is my life. This is what I wanted. I didn't want, you know, this. It's just, I'm doing this out of, I'm doing this out of necessity. And... But anyways, my hope for the environment, for this debate on the environment, was that it would be a wonderful opportunity to share ideas so that each of the candidates could share their ideas so that whoever ends up winning can take these ideas with them and implement what is best 
for the riding, what is best for the country, what is best for the world. And to me, this, this was the real point of the debate. The point of the debate was a sharing of the ideas to allow free and open speech so that we can share ideas, so that we can come to you know, the best solution. Just like in my engineering background, this is, this is how every company I ever worked with, this is how we operate. We share ideas. It's not about, oh, it's this guy's idea or it's my idea, whatever, and your idea is bad. No, it's like, and so what they did was they, they, you know, the organizer then said, okay, well, no, it's just only the parties from the leaders that were in the leaders debate. And I even wrote back and I said, but it's advertises all candidates and it's an opportunity to share ideas so that whoever wins can take these ideas to implement something good. So um, now today I actually got a call from actually tomorrow there is the the Swansea Ratepayers Association debate. And I'm actually very grateful that that the organizer is letting me participate. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this out loud or not, but the organizer actually told me that people have actually spoken with her and were, you know, not happy with her decision to allow candidates not in the whatever official leaders debate type candidate groups to participate. So these other parties are putting pressure on the organizer to silence. So I can see how this most likely happened for the 100 debates on the environment because they specifically advertise themselves as nonpartisan. But yet they either were partisan or they were influenced one or the other. And, and I know this for a fact because I know that there were PPC candidates in other ridings that were allowed to participate in their local 100 debates on the environment. So, hmm. so this, is, this is how I know this. And so what I'm seeing right now is I'm seeing that the current establishment government is against free speech. This is what I'm seeing. I'm seeing that we do not have free speech. It is written in our constitution, but they are, but they are actively trying to silence people and stop free speech. This is, what I'm, this is what I am seeing. This is what I'm experiencing. This is, like to me, it is so sad because the only reason I'm running is because is not for me. It is not for money. It is like my campaign. I took like zero donations. People have asked to donate to me and I've refused. I said, you know, I don't need any money. All I need is just people to, you know, put the word out. You know, you have a candidate, go to willppc.com, talk to me, whatever. That's all I need. That's the only thing I need. And anyways, um, I'm really sad that these debates are wonderful opportunities to share ideas. And they want to, instead of sharing ideas to come up, you know, with, you know, the best solution, they want to silence voices. Hmm. 
So this is so I'm really I'm really sad about this. So when when you hear like Maxine Bernier say that you know our Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms is under attack, well, guess what? It really is. It really is. And yeah, which also goes back to the whole COVID thing too, because there are some, for example, in Belgium, there's like a leading uh, virologist and immunologist who knows exactly exactly what is going on with these vaccine mandates and he is he is opposed to them because because the um because what he is saying is you know he has certain you know different views on different models and the point is this like i'm not a met in the medical profession but the point is this it is really no different because you should not silence voices like in in the medic in especially if we have a global pandemic you should allow the freedom of speech and communication so that these ideas can be shared different ideas can be shared for finding out what the best solution is not necessarily the best financial solutions just like the follow your follow the money right but what is the best solution for for the citizens and for the world. And so this is really sad how that is being silenced as well, especially especially if if we are in this terrible pandemic that they're all saying that we're in. Yeah, and it's very tricky because like for example for that the debate on the environment um you know, it's not it's not like um someone made a law that you weren't allowed to speak at that debate. It was just that the organizers, for whatever reason, chose not to have you. And so, I mean, technically they're free to do that. They're free to invite whoever they want to a debate. But on the other hand, um, it just shows that they are they have a perspective and maybe they aren't willing to entertain ideas that are, that are very far away from their, their perspective. And that's, that's sort of like a, a a different, it's not like the government limiting speech. It's everyone everywhere sort of limiting what they want to hear kind of thing. It's a very different sort of problem to solve. Um, yeah, and maybe we can talk a little bit about climate change because that's what that debate was about. And you, you were in the uh, the chat of that Zoom meeting that that debate was had, but you were you were muted. I was there. Um, yeah, what is your what are your views on on climate change, and and what would you have said if you were at that debate? So. It is, it is very easy for people to say, you know, we should have like zero carbon emissions and all sorts of things. But we have, we have to look at what the reality of Canada is. The reality is we have winter, we have snow, and we use natural gas to heat our homes. So we need the oil industry just to keep warm. And if you have your high-efficiency natural gas furnace, 
let me tell you, it, it pollutes a lot less than, you know, if you have electrical heating or coal or wood or whatever else you use to heat your home. So, so what we, what we need to, what we need to do is we need to, what Canada really, in my opinion, but obviously what we need to do, just like I said there, you know, it's, it's you know, my opinion isn't necessarily, this is the way that we're going to do it. It's like, obviously it's just a way to start the dialogue to start, get people to think so that we can come up with the best solution. But in my opinion, what we need to do is we need to, get Canada to become energy self-sufficient. So to be energy self-sufficient, like here in Ontario, for example, we should be purchasing the oil from Alberta. We should not be purchasing oil from, you know, the U.S. or Saudi Arabia or, you know, other places. In Canada, we have, because I have oil and gas experience, I, I worked in oil and gas, and I know that Canada has, you know, you know, the, the strictest environmental regulations and and even even, you know, like companies that I worked with, they actually went over and above environmental regulations for for their um, you know for the, for their exploration. And what they were also doing was they did not have any technology that they patented. They actually well, yeah, well, they obviously did, but but the environmental, all of the environmental um, benefits and technologies that they developed, they actually were sharing with other companies within the industry, so that they could have industry best practices. So terrible things would happen. I can just foresee terrible things happening with you know allowing China to do offshore drilling, just here, you know, just in the. In the east coast of Canada, China does not have the same environmental standards as Canada. They just do not. To allow them to drill there is an environmental disaster. And then when we purchase oil from them, it's like we cannot say, yes, Canada is so good. We are not drilling for oil. We're not polluting. We are outsourcing this to someone else. The... Um, a lot of the people in the hundred, a lot of the other candidates, they spoke about electric energy. So now electric, electric cars. Yes, we should get rid of all of our cars and they should all be electric cars. What they need to understand is that it requires rare earth. You need this for the batteries. And 75% of the rare earth comes from China. Rare earth is not rare. What is rare is it's rare to be able to extract it at a you know at a um, economic type cost. So in China, in order to do that, they do not have any environmental controls. They do not have any controls in terms of you know safety for for workers and stuff like that because they have they. It doesn't matter if workers are injured or it doesn't matter if there's so so many toxins created that you know destroy forests. They don't care. They just extract this and then they sell it to, for example, Canada so that we can have batteries and electric cars. And then Canada says, Oh yes, we're such a good country country. We don't pollute. We have electric cars. But they don't understand that the world is one you know, outsourcing your pollution to another 
country does not make you a green country. It does not make you an environmental friendly country. You are, you are contributing to the problem. So here what we need to do is we need to do the same thing. We need to be rare earth independent as well. We should, so, so luckily we have actually a company in Saskatchewan who is actually starting to do this rare earth mining. And this is, these are the things that we need to encourage. We need to encourage, you know, businesses and companies to create, you know, best practices and using our wonderful Canadian, you know, regulations and standards and to be able to extract and process our rare earth in an environmentally friendly way so that we can then use it for our batteries and our, our electricity and, and and such. So mm. so this is so this is what we need to do. Like a lot of them said, yeah, we should not do mining in Canada. We should not do any we should shut down the oil. We need to do carbon taxes and all of this, right? And these things do not help the environment. Coming up with different solutions like this helps. Yeah, and then uh, I guess what would you what would you think about the idea that we need to reduce carbon emissions at all costs? I think that's a very common view and it's something I struggle with myself. I'm not sure how much of a cost I'm willing to take in order to reduce carbon emissions um but where where are you on that question so here in here in canada we actually have large forests like like probably you know the the way that i look at it is we need to we need to start reducing step one is start reducing the pollution and there are, I know that we had, we used to have emission testing in Ontario. The thing, the thing is, the thing is this, it is, we need to keep our engines running, our engines tuned. If we have like cars or furnaces at home, whatever, we need to make sure that we have like the proper maintenance and tuning of these engines so that so that they work as efficiently as possible. So, so that's number that's that's sort of number one. Like so, whatever whatever we currently have now, we need to make sure that it's working properly. And number two is we also we also have to we have to realize that even you know building you know like the windmills and such they require they require mining. We need to you know mine for coal and, and, and do things like that in order to, to produce the steel and all of these things. So, so, so yes, you know, there are, there are, there certainly are opportunities in terms of, in terms of science. We do have, I know that in France, there's an international, um, I guess, a team of international scientists working together on, on building the first, cold fusion working cold fusion reactor so 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 this this will really 
be the future, like, but it's this is like maybe 10, 20 years from now. But in the meantime, we need we need to be able to do something. We need to be able to do something here. And and I think that our first step first step towards that is to as of today, what can we do today? We cannot replace all of our cars and go to electric cars today. Um, and obviously we would need to have a whole bunch of more electrical power generation stations. But what we can do is, as a first step, is use clean Canadian oil instead of dirty foreign oil. So that, that would be probably step number one that we need to take. We will have to take many steps to get there, but this is step number one that we can do immediately, that we can do, that we can do now. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been an hour. I know you have a commitment uh, soon. Um, any, uh, any last things you want to say on anything, any topics we haven't covered? Or? Well, I think the, the, only, the only real thing that I need to warn people about is that the vaccine passport is something that is not intended to be used to reduce the spread of COVID. It is something to be used for surveillance of the vaccinated. And my older brother, he's working in, he's actually working in Kuwait. He's an expat working in Kuwait. And uh, so I have a little chat going with, you know, my brother in Kuwait and my other brother who's in Calgary. And then he's in a different time zone. And he says, would you guys just stop typing? My phone is buzzing like crazy. And it's like, well, if you, and I'm trying to sleep. I said, well, if you're sleeping, turn your phone off. He says, I cannot turn it off because, you know, because he has a, because he has his COVID, COVID tracking app on it. And by law, he has to keep his phone on 24 seven. Hmm. And so this is, this is Kuwait. So, um, so this is a future that we can all look forward to if we allow it. Here in Canada, we are very, very lucky. We are very lucky because we have September 20th, we have a choice. We have a choice. Do you want to vote for freedom or not? And that's it. Hmm. Well, that's certainly a a big question for people to ask. And it's an important election. So I want to thank you for uh, agreeing to being on this podcast. You're welcome. I'm going to say one and, more uh, one more closing comment if it's okay. Okay, yeah, sure. So um so anyways, um one really sad thing that I that I came across was um, my MMP during during the shutdowns 
I phoned, you know, I phoned my, actually I spoke with, not with my MMP, but one of the representatives to express, to express my concern or unhappiness about the lockdowns. And I was told that, oh yeah, your MMP is, is against lockdowns, but had to vote for lockdowns because they had to vote with the party. And this was something that I found really disturbing to me because this is somebody that I had voted for. This is somebody who is representing me, but is not, is not actually looking out for my best wishes. And for me, what, what I have been doing is in these three weeks, I've been personally walking around, meeting people every day. And, and it's very difficult, obviously, in a riding of over 100,000 voters to, to meet everyone. But, but I do my best to see as many people as I can. On my wealthppc.com webpage, I, I post, I have like a tour dates um, section where people can find me. And, but I, I tell people, I tell people, when you, when you vote for me, you are voting for someone that is going to represent you somebody who is going to look out for your best interests. So, th so this is, so this is a, what I just need to need to say that when you vote for me, you're voting for someone who, who will actually listen to you and look out for your best interests. Well, that's a, that's a good positive note to end on there. Um, Unless you have anything else you want to say. <laughs> I guess I, I talked a lot for being an introvert. So. Yeah, you, you have a lot to say. Anyways, um, anyways, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for agreeing. And uh, maybe I'll see you out, uh, out on the campaign at some point in the next few days. Sure, sounds good. That's great. All right. Okay, and have, have a good night. Thank you so much. You too. Yep, bye.